Well, as we continue with our last two lessons, because we only have two more lessons and then we have sharing day, on the life of the Old Testament patriarch Jacob, we're going to move, as I said, very quickly in our coverage of the last chapters that deal with him. And those are chapters 33 through 36, because chapter 37 starts with the life of Jacob, I mean of uh, Joseph. In our current lesson, we're going to take a look at three primary events which occurred in chapters 33 and 34. So that's what we're going to cover, chapters 33 and 34. And as you can see, I've entitled these events, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. The good event is found in chapter 33, verses 1 to 16, if you want to put a little marker after verse 16. And that was Jacob's reconciliation with who? Right, his older brother Esau. Overall, it was a very good reunion between the two brothers, especially in light of Esau's prior murderous hatred toward uh, Jacob. The bad event, which we're going to discuss, goes from the 17th verse of chapter 33 to the 24th verse of chapter 34, and it is definitely a bad event. It has to do with the rape of Jacob's daughter, Dinah. She was raped by an Hivite prince. Now, as bad as that episode in the life of Jacob's family was, it was followed by an even worse episode, one which was an extremely ugly blemish on the patriarchal record. And that episode, which is found recorded in chapter 34, verses 25 to the end of the chapter, verse 31, was the horrible, atrocious revenge that was taken by two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, upon not only the Hivite prince who had raped their sister, but upon the entire population of the um, city of Shechem. So since we're going to discuss these three events in merely one lesson, which I know you probably think is an impossibility where I am concerned. I'm just going to, that's all our introduction. We're just going to jump right in now and look at part one, the good. I do not have a lot of transparencies. I hardly have any. <laughs> I was doing well just to be here this morning. So let's look at the good, the reconciliation with Esau. And for this, I'm going to read quickly verses 1 to 16 of chapter 33. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau came, and with him 400 men. And he divided the children unto Leah and unto Rachel and unto the two handmaids. And he put the handmaids and their children foremost, and Leah and her children after, and Rachel and Joseph hindermost. And he passed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. And Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Isn't that wonderful? Yes, I did that with my sister and my brother. Verse 5, And he lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, Who are those with thee? And he, Jacob, said, The children which God hath graciously given thy servant. Then the handmaidens came near, they and their children, and they bowed themselves. And Leah also with her children came near and bowed themselves. And after came Joseph near, only child who's mentioned by name. And Rachel, and they bowed themselves. And he said, This is Esau speaking, What meanest thou by all this drove, all these gifts, in other words, which I met? 
And he, Jacob, said, These are to find grace in the sight of my Lord. And Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep that thou hast unto thyself. And Jacob said, Nay, I pray thee, if now I have found grace in thy sight, then receive my present at my hand. For therefore I have seen thy face as though I had seen the face of God, and thou wast pleased with me. Take, I pray thee, my blessing that is brought to thee, because God hath dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. And he urged him, and he took it. And he said, Let us take our journey, and let us go, and I will go before thee. Verse 12 is Esau speaking. Verse 13, And he, Jacob, said unto him, My Lord knoweth that the children are tender, meaning they're young, and the flocks and herds with young are with me. And if men should overdrive them one day, all the flock will die. Let my Lord, I pray thee, pass over before his servant, and I will lead on softly, according as the cattle that goeth before me and the children be able to endure until I come unto my Lord unto Seir. And Esau said, Let me now leave with thee some of the folk that are with me. And he, Jacob, said, What needeth it? Let me find grace in the sight of my Lord. By the way, the word grace or graciously is used five times in, in this account. And five, remember, is the number of grace. And is this a scene of grace? Yes. And who's really the one who's been gracious in this scene? God. Well, mostly God. God worked in both of the boys' hearts, their men's hearts, so that this scene was possible. Verse 16, 16, so Esau returned that day on his way unto Seir. No sooner had Jacob crossed back over the Jabbok River to join, remember he had been on the, um, the, the north side, well he crossed back over to the south side after his wrestling match with Angel of the Lord to join his family on the southern shore. Now he's back on the south shore. Remember, Esau's coming up from the south, so he's back on this side of the, the Jabbok River. Uh, no see, sooner had he done that, you know, the wrestling match had ended at daybreak. And so then he crosses over, and he lifts up his eyes, and who does he see coming? He sees his brother approaching in the distance with a band of 400 men. Not only had the night proven to be very important to Jacob with regard to his uh, spiritual relationship with the Lord, but the day was going to be very important for him with regard to his physical relationship with his brother Esau. It was to be a day of reconciliation, we could call this, for Jacob and Esau, a day which Jacob had long anticipated, but probably, well, we know, with a great deal of um, apprehension and anxiety. And Esau probably had those same feelings. Well, after his exhaustive night of struggling oops, with the, um, the angel of the Lord, which ended with Jacob's spiritual surrender. That's what we saw the last time we met together. And also ended with a new limping walk for Jacob. Remember, his hip was dislocated. And what else did it end with? Something else that was new. Right, a new name. His name was changed from Jacob Deceiver to Israel, or Israel, meaning Prince of God. 
And also he got the Lord's blessing. He did receive the Lord's blessing. After all that, Jacob was ready to face his brother and whatever consequences that meeting would bring with it. But first, he would do one last thing. He would arrange his family in a prioritized procession before actually meeting with his brother. And the scripture tells us that Jacob divided his family into at least three groups, possibly four. He put each set of children with their respective mother. Now, the two maidservants and their children, where did he put them? Up front. Then he put behind them... See, they could be one group, or maybe he put them in two groups, but the scripture doesn't tell us, so it could be three groups. Put the maidservants and their children in one group, and then right behind them was Leah and her children, and then who was in the back? <laughs> Rachel and Joseph. Now, some have speculated that this was done for protective purposes. If, in other words, Esau was going to attack, then who would be the most protected? Obviously, Rachel and Joseph. However, I find it difficult to think that he actually did this for protective purposes because women and children against a band of 400 men, I don't care where they are in the lineup, they don't stand much of a chance. They couldn't possibly outrun 400 men. Um, so I think that he probably, it's more likely that he did this for purposes of introducing them to Esau in his priority. I don't think this was a good thing to do, but I think that's how why he did it, to introduce them to Esau, which actually did occur in verses 6 and 7. Now, it's interesting to find that although none of the other children of Jacob are mentioned by name, as I said when we were reading the text, who is? Joseph is the only one mentioned by name, and he's mentioned twice in verse 2, and he's mentioned again in verse 7. And if you notice in verse 7, he's even mentioned before his mother, Rachel. It lists Joseph first and then Rachel. And what does that tell us? Is that an indication that Joseph is going to be become very important in the significant future history of the nation of Israel? In the history of Jacob's family, I think it is. It's a, it's a little clue that this guy is going to be very special. And he is. Well, just as an aside thought here, I don't think, as I mentioned, that Jacob's processional lining up of his wives and his children was a move which did a whole lot to help the family life situation of the home. Do you? I mean, how would you have liked your parents to have done that kind of a lineup with you if you are more than one child? So I think it's really little wonder that Joseph's brothers, as we're going to see if we'd study this, I don't know if yet if we're going to study Joseph's life, but when you get to chapter 37, it's no wonder that his brothers hate him so much, right? I mean, he was definitely his father's favorite. And uh, parental favoritism, jo uh, Jacob should have known this better than anyone because he had it in his home because his mother favored him and his father favored Esau, and we saw what a problem that made. He shouldn't have done this. I don't think this was wise, but uh, you certainly knew where you stood in Jacob's home, didn't you? But that, I don't think, was being a very good father. But by now, Esau and his army had arrived, and apparently they halted at some distance. It was obviously a walkable distance before Jacob's family. Here's Jacob's family on one side, and, and Esau and his army stop, but it's within walking distance. Because we find that Jacob then went out alone and in front of all of his family, and he began his approach to Esau. Now, there are two things about his walk toward Esau, which Esau 
obviously must have noticed. First of all, he would have noticed, noticed Jacob's distinct limp, right? I'm sure first thing he knows, wow, my brother's really aged. <laughs> you know, when you haven't seen somebody in 20 years, you think, boy, have they aged. Of course, you don't realize that you've aged, too. <laughs> but, well, maybe you do. But um, he, I'm sure he noticed, wow, he's really aged, and he has a limp. wonder how he got that. And then secondly, he would have observed Jacob's respectful courtesy because he stopped as he was walking toward Esau. Jacob stopped seven times. And what did he do? He bowed himself down, uh, which was an act of respect, which was shown in those days to a king. Was Esau a king? In fact, he was a king. Yes, he was. He, Esau was the king of Edom. He was the, the ruler of the land of Edom. Edom was even named for him. Now, some have criticized Jacob for cowering before his brother, saying that Jacob was not acting like a prince with God. He was not acting like Israel. After all, you know, the Lord's prophecy had stated that the elder brother would serve the younger so they criticize him for doing this. They say he should not have bowed before Esau. Others say that his bows were not acts of cowering at all. They claim, and I agree with this second batch of people, that it, was, uh, it took great courage to approach Esau alone like this. And it took great humility to do so in that particular manner. You know, walking and bowing and walking and bowing. Jacob was showing proper respect and courtesy, not only to a king, but to an offended brother. Had he offended his brother? It was his deceit and his lying which had caused the rift in the first place, right? So his action really demonstrated his respect and his repentance. And the response was absolutely incredible and probably far beyond what either brother could have anticipated. In fact, I would say that it was really a miracle. This reconciliation was a miracle. God's grace had intervened. Esau, although the offended party, was overcome with emotion at the sight of his limping twin brother humbling, humbly approaching him. Apparently, a deep chord of emotion um, was struck. And what did he do? He, it kind of reminds me of the, the father of the prodigal son. He, he ran to Jacob. He embraced him. He fell on his neck. And he kissed him. And all that is like in the continual. You know, he continued to kiss him. And then it says they mutually wept in each other's arms. Isn't that just a beautiful scene? It's a beautiful scene of two, two brothers who had been parted for 20 years. So it was a glorious day of reconciliation. And while God had been affecting a change in Jacob, who else had he been working on? He had also been working on Esau. We don't know what happened to Esau's murderous intentions. Um, or we don't even know when they vanished. They could have vanished as he saw Jacob approaching him. They could have vanished years before that. I mean, maybe when he was coming with the army of 400, it was to welcome Jacob. We don't know. Maybe it wasn't. <laughs> maybe his heart didn't soften until he actually saw him. We don't know when his feelings of murder left him. But we do know that there was 
definitely at this point a change in Esau concerning his brother because he forgave him without even hearing a word of apology from Jacob. Apparently, it was a very emotional moment for both brothers, as we can imagine, because neither one of them seems able to speak for a while. They're just hugging each other and crying. No, no words are spoken. They just wept tears of joy as they continued their embrace. And then, at last, noticing all the children who had perhaps, during this time of hugging and everything, the children of Jacob had obviously left their mothers and run up to Jacob and Esau, perhaps surrounding them, um, Esau noticed them and asked who they were. And Jacob then gave a testimony for God when he answered by saying that they were, look at verse 5, the children which God hath graciously given thy servant. Are children a gift from God? Absolutely, they surely are. And then Jacob introduced his family to his brother. First of all, each of the two handmaids came forward with their children, and they were followed by each of the two wives in order, Leah and then Rachel. They came forward, and notice how they all bowed. Very respectful people, and though even children were taught to be very respectful. They all bowed before Esau, and then they were introduced to him. Well, after the family introductions were completed, Esau had another question for his brother. He wanted to know what was the meaning of all the droves. This is in verse 8. All the droves or the gifts of animals which Jacob had sent to him on his way toward him from Edom or from Seir. Why had Jacob, he wanted to know, sent him such a lavish host of of gifts, of livestock. And Jacob's answer, we find, was very honest. He, He said he sent them in order to receive grace or favor from who? His Lord. Remember how he kept referring to Esau as his Lord with a small L. Now Esau's reply to that very transparent answer from Jacob was very courteous. And even very generous. He not only told Jacob that he had enough of his own, you know, signifying that he didn't need this great gift of livestock, but also notice he called Jacob my brother. He said, my brother. I have enough, my brother. Look at verse 9. In other words, he was telling Jacob that Jacob did not need to buy his favor. He didn't need to buy his grace or his forgiveness. He already had it. Notice he doesn't call Jacob his servant. He was saying, you know, you're not my servant. You are my what? My brother. So that was very gracious of Esau, was it not? This, this uh, scene is just full of grace. However, Jacob pressed Esau to accept the gifts anyway as a means of doing him a favor. It was actually a form of an offering. It was like, um, we could say it was like a peace offering of sorts. And Jacob was saying that it would bring joy to him if Esau would accept this gift. When Jacob, and I think this is in uh, verse 10, when Jacob commented to Esau that seeing his face, seeing his brother's face, was like seeing the face of God, he was actually saying that when Esau had looked upon him with favor and with forgiveness, Jacob realized 
the favor or the grace and the forgiveness of who? Of God himself. He realized God's hand in this reconciliation. And so he pressed Esau to accept the gift. Or literally, in the Hebrew, it's the blessing. He wanted to give him this blessing. It was really a peace offering. Again, then, we notice that Jacob gave testimony to God when he, when he told his brother that God had dealt graciously with him. Now, it's interesting if to compare Esau's words of verse 9. Look where Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Compare that with Jacob's words in verse 11 where he says, I have enough. And it says, and because I have enough. Actually, in the English, they both say, I have enough. So it looks identical, doesn't it? But in the Hebrew, we find that Esau literally said, I have much. And the word there for much or enough is R-A-B, rob. Whereas Jacob in verse 11 said, I have everything. And he used the, word, the Hebrew word kol, K-O-L. So Esau said, I have much. Jacob said, I have everything. Esau, you see, had a lot. He had a lot of material wealth. He was, in fact, as we said, the ruler or the king of an entire nation. He probably had more, materially speaking, than Jacob. Even though we know that Jacob had a lot. Jacob was a very wealthy man. He had been materially blessed by the Lord. But Esau probably had even more. Yet Jacob could say that he had everything. Why? Why could he say that? Right, exactly. Because he had the Lord. So he had everything. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. So that's just an interesting comparison, which we miss in the English well, probably after spending some considerable, considerable time together, you know, catching up on all that had happened in the past 20 years in each other's lives, the two brother, brothers then held another conversation. And this conversation had to do with their departure from that meeting place there, well, wherever the map is, there near the Jabbok River. So now they're going to talk about leaving that place. Um, Esau proposed to Jacob that they proceed on their journey, and he suggested that he would lead the way. Obviously, he assumed that Jacob would be heading southward toward Seir, you know, down toward Edom, down in this area where um, Esau lived. He had probably invited Jacob to his home to come and stay with him. He had met Jacob's family. Now he wanted Jacob to meet his family. So I am sure he had been invited down there. However, we find that Jacob declined Esau's offer. Even though Esau was offering Jacob his protection, you know, an army of 400 men would protect them from anyone, yet Jacob was not completely comfortable traveling and living with his brother for an extended period of time. Something, maybe he thought, something might happen to destroy their relationship again. And, and to him, it just wasn't worth the, the risk. They had reconciled, let's leave that alone and go on our ways. It was better to, uh, to him to have reconciled and to then split. After all, Esau was not a believer. God had worked in his heart, but not 
that much. Esau was a profane man, it tells us over in the book of Hebrews, so we know he died not a believer. Um, so he, he was, uh, there was a limit as to how much they actually had in common. Furthermore, with Esau's comment about going before him, before Jacob, it was in reality a statement of leadership. So even though we find that Jacob had referred respectfully to his brother as Lord with a small L, he could not make that a physical reality. He could not, you know, move to Seir and let Esau actually be his Lord, be his king without going contrary to God's covenant promise that made him the ruler over his brother. So it was wise, I believe it was wise, that he did not go with his brother down to Seir. Unfortunately, here we go back to Jacob, the the carnal part of Jacob. Unfortunately, his response to his brother was deceitful. So even though he had that wrestling match with the angel of the Lord and he submitted, we find this in our own lives, don't we? We have our great times and then we slide right back into our own old carnal nature. And so uh, he went back to his old habit of being deceitful. He used the excuse that his caravan would not be able to keep up with his brother. You know, he had, if he had to drive his flocks and his, um, and his children as quickly as Esau would travel, he said, surely they would die. Not, not probably the children, but some of the flocks would die. In other words, he was saying he couldn't possibly keep up with Esau and his men or his livestock would overheat. Now, there was a definite flaw in this part of his argument because Esau now also had a lot of livestock and herds, right? I mean, Jacob had given him massive amount of livestock. So he also would have to travel slower. And Esau would probably have traveled slower knowing that Jacob's caravan consisted of a lot of women and children. So there was a flaw in that argument. Um, The deceitful part of his response, however... The the most deceitful part came at the end of verse 14 where he implied that he would come at his own pace to Seir or to Edom. It's the same place. Seir or Edom is the same place. And as we're going to discover in just a few more verses, Jacob had no intention whatsoever of going to Seir. Instead, we find that he turned um, westward to Succoth, Succoth. I guess I would pronounce it Sukoth. He didn't go south at all. So he was totally being deceptive here. What he should have done is he should have told Esau that the Lord God had told him to return to Canaan. You know, when he was up in Haran with Uncle Laban, God had spoken to him and said, go to Canaan. He didn't tell him to go to Edom the country of Edom, to Seir. He told him to go to Canaan. He should have told Esau also that he had made a vow to God that he would build him an altar and a place of worship. If God brought him back safely to Canaan, remember that promise he made God the night he had the dream of the the latter Lord? He had vowed that he would go, go back to a place called Bethel. And there he would build the Lord an altar and a place of worship. Instead, 
However, Jacob slipped back into the old habit, which apparently was very difficult for him to shake. He deceived his brother into thinking that he would follow him at his own pace to Seir. He even refused Esau's offer, which Esau offers um, in verse 15, to leave some of his men with Jacob. At least let me leave some of the men, you know, to offer you a little extra protection and a little extra manpower to drive your flocks and to guide them on their way. Jacob even declined that offer because he knew that if he didn't go south, if he went westward, those men would immediately know of the deception and they would probably leave and go tell Esau and then Esau would get angry all over again. Anyway, the, the long and short of it is that Jacob simply should have told the truth. I don't think it would have offended Esau. I think he just should have said, well, I made a vow, I need to go to Bethel. But he didn't do that. So the good ended bad, on a bad note. But the good got worse, so let's look now at the bad. <laughs> and under the um, part two of our outline, now what did I do with the outline? There we go. Under two, we're going to look at the rape of Dinah. And we have three subdivisions we'll be looking at. First of all, the delay, the defilement, and the deception. We'll begin with the delay. Look with me at verses 17 to 20. And Jacob journeyed to uh, Sukkoth and built him an house and made booths for his cattle. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkoth. And Jacob came to Shalem, a city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padan Aram, and pitched his tent before the city. Where have we read that before? Pitched his tent before the city. Remind you of Lot? Pitched his tent before the wicked city of Sodom. And now we find Jacob making a very similar mistake. And he bought a parcel of a field where he had spread his tent at the hand of the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for an hundred pieces of money. And he erected there an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Well, before we read of the actual event of Dinah's defilement, we learn of the circumstances which led to that tragic event. Rather than immediately obeying God's command of Genesis 31:13, which was to return to Bethel, Jacob did what some of his predecessors had done before him. He tarried for quite some time in, first of all, a city named Sukkoth, and then a little bit later, he settled near a city named Shechem. Now, Sukkoth was located a bit north, just a little bit north of the Jabbok River. I think I had it um, written on that map right there. It's just a little bit north of the Jacob, Jabbok River and uh, almost directly west. So we find that he did indeed deceive his brother because rather than heading south, as he led his brother to believe, uh, he headed northwest toward Sukkoth. Now, we would think that even if he did not intend to do as he said and visit Esau, that at least he would be eager to go and see someone else. Now, who would that be? Think about it. His father. Wouldn't you think he would want to go see his father? Maybe he got, I'm sure he got word from Esau if he hadn't heard before this. Now he knew his mother was dead. 
But I would surely think that after 20 years, he would head over to see his father who was living in Hebron. But he didn't do that. He went to Sukkoth, which means in Hebrew, booths. That's what the word literally means. And uh, we learn that this name was derived from the fact that he not only built himself a house there, uh, but he built booths, it says, for his livestock. So rather than pitching a tent to demonstrate that he was merely a pilgrim passing through, and it does say he built a house in verse 17 in Sukkoth, um, and the tent was outside of Shechem, in case you're getting confused. But in Sukkoth, he did build a house. So rather than, you know, giving us the picture of a pilgrim passing through this world, Jacob built a house, a permanent dwelling. And so consequently, we learn that he was in no hurry to leave this area. I mean, it was right between the Jordan and the Jabbok River. So what does that tell you? Very fertile land for his livestock. So that was the reason he settled there. But he's going to, this was a a terrible choice. He made a bad decision. He was really disobedient here, made a bad choice, and he was going to reap some very heavy consequences concerning his own children. And again, who is this similar to? Lot. You know, Lot pitched his tent toward Sodom, and then eventually we find him living in Sodom, and he reaped the price with his own children And that's exactly what happens here with Jacob. The one good thing which Jacob did while he was uh, living outside the the city of Shechem, because he lived in Sukkoth for a while, we don't know how long, but then he moved, pitched his tent, got in his tent again, left his house, and he went over here to um, Shechem, which is the same area as Sychar that we read about in the New Testament. Remember in chapter 4 of John? Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at a well outside of a city called Sychar. It's the same as Shechem or Sikkim or Sychar. And we know that Jacob built a well there because that's where Jesus talked with the Samaritan woman, was at Jacob's well. Well, that's where he, well, that's where he went after he settled in Succoth. He got back into his tent and he pitched his tent toward the city of Shechem. And when he was there, not only did he build a well, but he built an altar. And he named that altar El Elohe Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. And by that name, we find that Jacob was claiming his new name, Israel, Israel. But by his long delay in both Succoth and Shechem, he wasn't really behaving like Israel, the prince of God, was he? He was behaving more like old Jacob, doing things his way, not God's way. You see, even though he built an altar to serve as a place of worship and testimony to God, yet his disobedience to God really kind of negated that worship. What does it tell us in 1 Samuel 15, 22? It tells us that to sacrifice is no substitute for obedience. To obey is better than sacrifice. The altar Jacob was to have erected was to have been located where? Near Shechem? No. The altar he was to have built, which he vowed to God that he would build, was to have been in Bethel, not in Shechem. And as we're going to see, his delay of disobedience was a very expensive uh, detour. 
So let's look secondly at the defilement. And for this, we turn to chapter 34 and look at verses 1 to 5. And Dinah, the daughter of Leah, which she bare unto Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. There's trouble right there. And when Shechem, now this is confusing because not only is Shechem the name of the wicked city, it's also the name of the prince of the city. It says, and when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and defiled her. And his soul clave unto Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the damsel and spake kindly unto the damsel. And Shechem spake unto his father Hamor, saying, Get me this damsel to wife. And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now his sons were with his cattle in the field, and Jacob held his peace until they were come. By the time of the events that we read about here in chapter 34, Jacob's children had grown up considerably. When, when Jacob had left Haran and Uncle Laban and then had uh, reconciled with Esau in chapter 33, Dinah, Jacob's one and only daughter that we know of, if he had other daughters, we don't know that. She's the only daughter mentioned. She had merely been a little girl. When, when the scene we just talked about, when Jacob and, and Esau reconciled, Dinah was just a little girl. However, now in chapter 34, she was probably somewhere between the ages of 13 and 16. So what does that tell us? Jacob had stayed far too long in his settled position outside the worldly and wicked Hivite city. Of Shechem. His young teenage daughter, we're told, went out to see the daughters of the land. Now, whether she was lonely for female companionship, or whether she was a bit rebellious, or whether she was just plain naive, we really don't know. For whatever reason, Dinah sought worldly companions. Is that a danger sign right there? sure is. It's always a dangerous formula for a young person when they desire companionship with the world, with young people of the world. That's why it's so important for your young people to have positive peer pressure and good godly friends instead of the worldly kind and the negative peer pressure. She had been brought up in a family which knew the true God and she should have been content to find her companions among the girls in her in their encampment. Whether she had other sisters, she should have been content to play with her sisters, not to play when you're a teenager, but to associate with them. Or um, you know that there are many, many servants that they had also had daughters, so she should have been content to find her companions among some of her father's employees if she didn't have any sisters, because they at least would have heard and known about the Lord. And another mistake we find is that she obviously went alone on her escapades to visit her Hivite girlfriends. And it was very, very unsafe, as it is today, in that uh, culture to do this. It was accepted and it was understood that a young, unescorted girl was fair game 
to to for the men, you know, to flirt with and even to to seduce. Promiscuity was not only widespread, but it was even part of the pagan rebellion uh, religious system of that day. And we're going to see people didn't even have a conscience about stuff like adultery, fornication. But Dinah, Dinah was old enough to have understood the risk of being alone with ungodly young people. She must have often been warned about such dangers by her parents. And she was old enough also to have noticed the vast interest in sex and in sexual pleasure of the pagan society of her day. She was old enough also to have noticed the interest which men took in her. And they, she probably stood out because she was different. She was a foreign girl who didn't dress probably in the gaudy, ostentatious way of the pagan girls and maybe didn't wear as much makeup and just had a natural beauty about her. Um, so she, I'm sure, noticed the interest that men had in her, and she probably even enjoyed their flirtations. Yet she probably also thought, as so many young girls in their naivete or their stupidity think, that they can take care of themselves. I can take care of myself. I have a cell phone. <laughs> okay. There seems to have been some obvious rebellion in her as well. Or it is doubtful that she would have ventured off, you know, alone to de- befriend the world. Maybe she even snuck out at night. Who knows? But there does seem to be some rebellion in all of this. She may just have gotten tired of all the rules and regulations of her home. Have you ever heard that one? She's too strict in this home. I got to get out of here. Give me my space. Chill out. <laughs> Especially when she saw all the other young people over in Shechem having such a good time. You know, and here she was, just she didn't even have TV or movie theaters, none of the dancing, the nightlife. You know, she was really deprived. So she was attracted to the world. And that's the danger of daddy having set her there, right? Had no business putting her there, tempting her like that. Well, then, when a young Hivite prince took an interest in her, she was probably really flattered. I mean, after all, any one of her young Shechemite girlfriends would have been ecstatic if the prince of their city had paid attention to them, right? I mean, so she was probably very enthralled at the attentions of a powerful, wealthy, and prominent young man who was probably very worldly wise in the ways of enticing young girls. At any rate, Dinah was not careful, and next thing she knew, she had been defiled. She lost her virginity. And then, actually, I mean, we have to commend the boy a little bit because he didn't just dump her, as we find other guys in the scripture have done once they've gotten the girl they want. They, they almost hate them, and they dump them, but he didn't. He took her to his home, and he kept her. Uh, we're told that he loved Dinah. And he treated her kindly. Now, of course, his love, quote-unquote, was not true love, was it? Because the Bible tells us that true love doth not behave itself unseemly. True love seeketh not her own. True love seeketh no, uh, thinketh no evil and rejoiceth not in iniquity. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 5 and 6. That definition of love, do you think? Not at all, really. He had behaved most unseemly. 
He had selfishly taken her for his own pleasure. He had obviously thought evil thoughts in order to do the deed, and he had found pleasure in evil. So he may have spoken kindly to Dinah, but he certainly had not treated her kindly. And this is why Solomon warns in Proverbs 5.3, why he warns so strongly about, about not being fooled by the smooth, sweet talk of immorality. For all we know, Dinah may have enjoyed Shechem's love and attention. We're really not told. But do you notice she doesn't try to escape from him and run to her family? She remained with the young prince, whose name, as I said, was just like the city, Shechem. Perhaps she was too shamed to go home or feared the consequences both to herself and to her young man. Or perhaps she really thought she loved him and wanted to marry him. But whatever her true feelings may have been, Shechem, we're told, was smitten. He wasted no time, therefore, in going to his father, Hamor, who was, you know, the the ruler, the king, I guess you could call him in a way, of the city of Shechem, and he told his father that he wanted to marry Dinah. He asked his father, and in those days the fathers made the marital arrangements, so he asked his father to go to Jacob, to Dinah's father, to make the necessary marital arrangements. In the meantime, Jacob had learned about Dinah's defilement. And we can be absolutely sure that he was stricken with great grief over that and also anger. Yet perhaps because the rapist was the son of the local ruler and the situation could have caused quite a problem if he marched into the city and killed him or some such thing, Jacob determined that he would simply wait, before he did anything, he would wait for his sons to come in from the fields. So that's what we look at next. We've talked about the delay, the defilement, and we'll move now to the deception and um, the deception of his sons. Let's look at verses 6 to 24. It says, And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out unto Jacob to commune with him. All right, they're going to make them, he's going to try to make his proposal of marriage to Jacob. And the sons of Jacob came out of the field when they heard it. In other words, when they heard about the defilement of their sister. And the men were grieved and they were very wroth because he, Shechem, had wrought folly in Israel in lying with Jacob's daughter, which thing ought not to be done. And Hamor communed with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longeth for your daughter. I pray you give her him to wife, and make ye marriages with us, and give your daughters unto us, and take our daughters unto you. And he and ye shall dwell with us, and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade ye therefore therein, and get you possessions therein. And Shechem said unto her father and unto her brethren, Let me find grace in your eyes, and what ye shall say unto me I will give. Ask me never so much dowry and gift, and I will give according as ye shall say unto me, but give me the damsel to wife. And the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor, 
his father deceitfully. Where did they learn that, do you think? (laughs) From their father. And said, because he had defiled Dinah, their sister, and they said unto them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one that is uncircumcised, for that were a reproach unto us. But in this will we consent unto you, if ye will be as we be, that every male of you be circumcised, then we will give our daughters unto you, and we will take your daughters to us, and we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. But if ye will not hearken unto us to be circumcised, then we will take our daughter, and we will be gone. And their words pleased Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. And the young man deferred not to do the thing because he had delight in Jacob's daughter, and he was more honorable than all the house of his father. And Hamor and Shechem, his son, came unto the gate of their city and communed with the men of their city, saying, These men are peaceable with us. Therefore, let them dwell in the land and trade therein. For the land, behold, it is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us for wives and let us give them our daughters. Only herein will the men consent with us for to dwell with us, to be one people. If every male among us be circumcised as they are circumcised, shall not their cattle and their substance and every beast of theirs be ours? Only let us consent unto them and they will dwell with us. And unto Hamor and unto Shechem his son hearkened all that went out of the gate of his city. And every male was circumcised, all that went out of the gate of his city. While Hamor, the father of Shechem, was making a proposal for marriage with Jacob on behalf of his son Shechem, Jacob's sons came in from the fields. Now they had at this point already heard, they had learned about their sister's defilement. And the scripture tells us that they were not only very grieved, but what else? Very wroth. They were angry. As far as we know, Dinah, as I've said, seems to be, now this may not be true, but she seems to be the only sister in a large family of boys, and therefore she would have been very highly treasured by all of them. Both their grief and their anger were therefore normal and right. Those were right emotions for this situation. By the fact also that the scripture states that they were angry because Shechem had wrought folly in Israel in lying with Jacob's daughter. By that statement, we find that Jacob's sons understood not only the sacredness of the marriage relationship, but they also understood uh, that their special divine destiny was to be a great nation of people called Israel. They understood that. Jacob had obviously taught them the covenant promises of God concerning both the promised land and the promised seed, you know, the coming Savior. He must have pressed home to them how it was vitally necessary that they keep the family pure and that they not intermarry with pagan worshipers. 
Now, the fury, here these boys come in, you know, they come into the the tent, and there is Hamor and Shechem. We find out Shechem was with him, the son and the father, and they're talking with Jacob. And they come in, and their faces were probably bright red, and they're very angry. And yet we find that the fury of Jacob's sons apparently had very little impact on Hamor. Because he just very matter-of-factly stated his proposal of marriage. He said, The soul of my son Shechem longeth for your daughter. I pray you give him her to wife. Give him, give her him to wife. Did I say that? Yeah. You notice there was no apology. None whatsoever for what had occurred. I mean, he didn't even express or demonstrate any negative emotions at all about what his son had done to Jacob's daughter or, you know, to the, guy, the boy's sister. Instead, he very unashamedly, in a, a very businesslike manner, asked Dinah, uh, Dinah's family, to just give her over to his son to wife. <laughs> Actually, she was already in whose house? They didn't have her to give over. She was already there in uh, Shechem's home. Hamor probably assumed that um, by asking for marriage that this would appease their anger and even make them happy. You know, after all, he was the ruler of the Shechemite people and his son was a prince, Prince Charming. You know, wouldn't they be, shouldn't they be delighted in, in getting such a catch for their daughter, he probably thought this would make them very happy. They, they were doing the honorable thing. They were asking to make her uh, honorable here by marrying her. Well, Hamor, Hamor then began Hamor then began to speak about some of the benefits of such a marriage in verses 9 and 10. He made the broader suggestion that there should in fact be general intermarrying between their two peoples. When the two people groups uh, would come together, he, he said they would become a great nation. And this would provide all of them with, with more security and peace between the two groups, you know, and it would provide for greater, greater trade and business opportunities and greater financial gain for all concerned. And then Shechem himself, who was, he had accompanied his father to Jacob's home. That was pretty brave of him, wasn't it? Knowing how many brothers Dinah had. And he went with his dad. Anyway, he spoke up and he added that he would promise any size dowry or any size gifts which Jacob's, in other words, any monetary or, or physical um, material gifts that, his fam, that their family would require, he would give. So he obviously was very wealthy. We just named the price. He would spare nothing in order to gain her for his wife. Again, we note that there is no word of apology whatsoever. In fact, he didn't even seem to feel any sense of guilt for what he had done to Dinah or to the offense that he had brought to her family. In his eyes, he was being very generous. And like his father, he probably thought that they would be absolutely thrilled to have him as an in-law. I mean, after all, he was this prominent prince. Well, the proposal of Hamor and his son to Jacob and his sons was actually a very satanic proposal. From the world's perspective now, 
You know, somebody outside of Christianity who didn't understand all this, if somebody else was reading this, they'd say, well, that sounds very reasonable. Yes, he made a mistake, but he's trying to make good on it. This is a very reasonable and even a generous um, proposal here. But from God's perspective, it was very unholy and corrupting. The Shechemites were immoral pagans who would corrupt the Israelites. Intermarriage with the two groups would bring with it an amalgamation of God's people, and in no time, what would happen? They would cease to exist as a special people through whom God could send his son. And this is uh, why it was so satanic. And this is why Abraham, remember, had been so specific when he was giving orders, instructions to Eliezer to go find a wife for Isaac. He said to him, thou shalt not take a wife under the sons of the daughters of the Canaanites. And this is why Isaac had been, you know, specific when he sent Jacob. Yeah, he failed with Esau. Esau had married three Canaanites, but he told Jacob, go to Haran and find yourself a godly wife. Even today, God's people are not to be yoked in marriage to unbelievers, right? That's why it's very important that your children, grandchildren, don't even date. Because every date is a possible mate. They should not even date somebody who is not a believer. Now, of course, both the business-like manner, without apology, and the offer of money for their sister, which to them was really like treating her as a harlot whose body could be purchased, you know, for, for the asking. All of this only further infuriated Dinah's brothers. We find now from this point on, they do all the talking. We don't hear anything from Jacob until uh, later on. But during this conversation with Hamor and Shechem, the boys do, or the, the boys are now men, but they do all the talking. And this really sheds some bad light on Jacob. Because whatever he would have done in this situation, you know, to handle this situation, would have been better than what his sons did. Yet we find that he abdicated his parental authority in this whole scene. Now we got a hint of this earlier back in verse three, uh, 5 where it said that he held his peace, you know, until his sons would come in from the field. He, he really just abdicated and gave it. Gave the whole situation over to his sons. In verses 13 to 17, we find that it was Jacob's sons who decided what was to be the prerequisite for marriage. Jacob had already reaped a heavy price in the defilement of his daughter for not having been a more watchful father and for having settled near to a, a very wicked city. Now he was going to reap an even heavier price as he abdicated his authority to his sons who were crafty deceptors. Of course, we, we know where they learned that. And uh, two of them, he was going to reap a heavy price because not only would they become deceivers, but two of them would actually become murderers. At some point, the sons of Jacob had devised a plan of vengeance. Now, I don't know if this was while they were still out in the field or if when they came in and Hamor and Shechem were there, if they grouped up in a little circle and talked about what they were going to do. They devised a plan of vengeance on not only Shechem himself, the prince, but on all the men of the city 
of the city of Shechem. Now, we don't know if the term sons of Jacob, if that included all of the sons of Jacob, or if it referred to the sons of Leah, who would have been Dinah's full brothers. Dinah was the daughter of Leah, and so therefore she had six full brothers. They had the same mother and they had the same father. Um, it's doubtful that the term sons of Jacob included all 11 brothers. Now, remember, Benjamin isn't in this yet. Um, I doubt it included all of them because there was one son who wouldn't have had anything to do with this. And who would that have been? Joseph. So I doubt it includes all of them, maybe 10 of them, but most likely at least six of them were involved in this plan of vengeance. Um, his, his sons not only saw the young prince as being guilty of defiling their sister, but they saw the whole city as being guilty and deserving of judgment. A judgment. The whole city was given over to immorality, and no one had come forward to uh, either protect their sister or to protest what had happened to her. In fact, probably any one of the men of the city would have similarly defiled Dinah if they had been given the opportunity to do so. However, even if all of that is true, and it probably was for the most part, yet vengeance was not something that Jacob's sons were to take into their own hands, right? Vengeance belongeth to who? To God. Even if God had wanted to use Jacob's sons as his instruments of judgment against Shechem, he would not he would not have had them use deception, especially through a misuse of a very serious covenant sign, which was the sign of circumcision. The sons of Jacob who spoke to Hamor and Shechem re rejected the proposal of marriage with the deceitful excuse that Shechem was not circumcised. However, they went on to then pretend that they would accept the marriage proposal and they would even accept Hamor's proposition for intermarriage in general, you know, between their two people groups, if, what, if all the males of their city would consent to being circumcised. You know, they said uncircumcised men are a reproach to us. We cannot give our daughters, our women, to uncircumcised men. So they were saying that if the Shechemites would agree to that, then the sons of Jacob, so they lied, then they would become one people, it says in verse 16. That was definitely a lie because they had no intention whatsoever of becoming one people with the Shechemites. On the other hand, they said if the Shechemites did not agree to being circumcised, then they would take Dinah and they would be gone. Well, Hamor and Shechem, of course, were very pleased to hear this proposal, and they readily agreed to it. When they returned then to the gate of their city, Hamor and Shechem, the, the king and the prince of the city, shared this proposition of Jacob's sons with the men of their city. And what they did is they, of course, spoke of all the advantages that there would be for them. 
There would be greater trade opportunities. They would have access to all the lovely Hebrew women. The men liked that a whole lot. And even eventually gaining for themselves all that belonged to Israel. And the Shechemite men, we find, were very easily induced by both their lust for the foreign women and their greed for Jacob's possessions. Notice this is the key, verse 23. When Hamor and Shechem are talking to the men, they said, Shall not their cattle and their substance and every beast of theirs be ours? So you see, the reason they agreed to circumcision was for lust and for greed. So it says they went out the gate of the city, all the men, can you imagine this? All the men of the city went out and they submitted themselves to the um, circumcision surgery. Now, there was absolutely no understanding whatsoever of the true meaning of circumcision, which was to have served as a sign that a man believed in God and in God's coming Messiah. But there was no understanding of this. It's like, you know, really like when King, when Emperor Constantine came into power in the 300s and had everybody baptized and said, well, now they're all Christians. They had no understanding of what they were doing. So there was no conversion of faith in the, the men of Shechem at all. So Jacob's sons had blasphemously misused what we could call a religious event to deceive, and then, as we're going to see, to murder. So this then is where the event turns from bad to really ugly. Okay, let's look at the revenge of Simeon and Levi, verses 25 to 31. And it came to pass on the third day when they were sore that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brethren, took each man his sword and came upon the city boldly and slew all the males. And they slew Hamor and Shechem his son with the edge of the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went out. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain. Now these are the other sons of Jacob, not Simeon and Levi. These are probably the other four sons of Leah. And this was probably all in the plan, that after the two murdered everybody, they would come in, they saw all the men slain, and they looted. They spoiled the city because they had defiled their sister. Verse 28, they took their sheep and their oxen and their asses and that which was in the city and that which was in the field. And all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives took they captive and spoiled even all that was in the house. And Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, now they're finally back home with Jacob, ye have troubled me to make me to stink among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And I, being few in number, they shall gather themselves together against me and slay me, and I shall be destroyed, I and my house. I think it's eight times he uses me, I, or my. And they said, should he deal with our sister as with an harlot? Well... Knowing that the pain of circumcision was the worst on the third day, for some reason that's what happens, following surgery, two sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, those are his second and third oldest sons, moved boldly into the city and killed all the males. Now this would be all the men, obviously not the little boys, including Shechem, the prince, and uh, Hamor, his father. Obviously now they had help. 
in fulfilling this wicked deed, or even all the women of the city could have gathered together and fought off two men, right? So they had, they probably hired outside help or took servants or whatever, mercenary, mercenaries, but they had help in doing this, not just two men killed all the guys in the city. Then it says they took Dinah from Shechem's house and they brought her out of the city with them. No mention is made at all about her reaction to this atrocity, but just put yourself in her shoes and think what she must have been thinking. There were many, she had made many friends in this city. She was watching all the men perish. A lot of her girlfriend's boyfriends were killed. A lot of her lady friend's husbands were killed. A lot of innocent people were killed. Males were killed. So she either had to live the rest of, or maybe she didn't want, you know, she probably didn't even want to go. She could have left. She didn't want to go. I mean, she could have escaped when Hamor and Shechem were at Jacob's house. Couldn't she have run out the back door? But um, whatever the situation was, she would have to live with great guilt the rest of her life because of all those murderers, murders were actually her fault because she had desired to have worldly companions. Or she would have to live with great anger. Or maybe both, great anger at her brothers for what they did. Maybe she dealt with guilt and anger the rest of her life. Unless, you know, she truly submitted to the Lord and he was able to um, take all that from her. But we don't know. We don't hear anything more about Dinah. At any rate, verse 27, we're told that the other sons of Jacob showed up in the city uh, sometime later. And as I said, this was probably part of their plan. And when they saw the, the slain men, what did they do? They totally looted the city. They took everything. They didn't leave anything. I mean, they took it all. They even took the crops out in the fields, you know, plucked all the corn and everything. And they took all the children and they took all the women. So uh, what do you think happened to them? I guess they became servants and slaves. But that was probably good in the long run because at least they hear about the true God (laughs) from Jacob, we hope. Um, Henry Morris says this, quote, talking about the sons, uh, we don't... By the way, we don't know what they're thinking in what was in all of this, but uh, this was terrible cruelty, you know. But it's very likely that they justified their action as a holy zeal in defense of their faith and in defense of their family's corruption by pagan idolaters. So speaking of Jacob's sons, Henry Morris says this, quote, They were young men not yet seasoned in judgment, and they had surely been grievously provoked, not only by the actual rape of their sister, but also, and even more, by the moral indifference of the Shechemites themselves to the crime. Though such considerations can hardly justify their blasphemous treachery and murder, it is clear that much of the real blame must lie with who? Jacob. Exactly. End of quote. Jacob had not only pitched his tent far too near to a worldly pagan city, but he had obviously allowed his daughter much freedom and then he had done nothing of his own to help rectify the situation of her defilement he had not reprimanded Hamor or his son he had not demanded an apology he did not march into Shechem to snatch his daughter from Shechem's home who do you think might have done that remember Abraham when he marched after uh, those kings in order to get his nephew Lot? 
Jacob didn't do that. In fact, all that Jacob had done was to abdicate his parental authority to his sons who were both too young and too angry to properly handle the situation. But when Dinah was returned home by Simeon and Levi, and shortly thereafter all the other sons came back home with all the property and all the possessions and all the women and all the children of Shechem, finally Jacob got involved. However, he didn't really do too much. I mean, it was really too late at this point in time. He didn't do too much except complain to Simeon and Levi about the danger that they had brought to him. He didn't reprimand them for having killed everybody. He only seemed worried that they had caused him to stink among the inhabitants of the, uh, of the land there. And they had put him in great peril, great danger, because of the massacre. I mean, what would all the other Canaanites do? And the Perizzites, when they heard about this, they might group together and come and attack him. So he was worried more about the danger than he was about all the the men that had been murdered. Eight times we find that he used the words, I, me, or my. His testimony would be, his testimony for God would be a stench to those people. He was worried about that, but more so I think he was worried about the fact that they might come and destroy him and his sons. You know, he didn't, still didn't have a, uh, he even says, I shall be destroyed, I and my house. He obviously still doesn't have an understanding of God's promise of preservation, that that promise is unconditional. That, you know, God's promise to preserve Israel is not conditional upon what she does. If it was, she'd be long gone. It was an unconditional promise. Well, his complaint to his sons and his concern over his own welfare and his seeming lack of guilt for now, you know, how the whole entire situation had really been a result of his own disobedience because he should have gone to Bethel. From the very beginning, he should have gone to Bethel instead of taking his family to Succoth and then to Shechem. Uh, but all of this was very, his, his uh, lack of guilt apparently was suddenly silenced by one question. And you can almost hear the scorn in the voices of Simeon and Levi against their father when they said, said to him, should he, and here they're speaking of Shechem, the prince, should he deal with our sister as with an harlot? You see, although Shechem had wanted to take Dinah as his wife, you know, rather than maintain her as his harlot, yet he had taken her first as a harlot, right? He had. The question of Simeon and Levi silenced their father because it brought home to him the fact that he had not been very sensitive to the sin of sexual immorality. Seemingly, Jacob had been willing to let the matter go if Shechem had married Dinah. He complained about his, what his sons had done, but he himself had done nothing to rectify the situation, Right? So he really didn't have any right to complain. Had he completely, completely forgotten that his own flesh and blood daughter had been raped? She had been treated as a harlot. Well, as we find at the end of chapter 34, Jacob 
could say absolutely nothing in reply to that question from his sons. He may at this point, we don't know, but he may have just departed to go from them to the altar that he had built and sort things out in his mind. He might have finally been convicted and realized that he had failed both his daughter and his sons. He may have realized that the real guilt for all that had happened had in fact been a result of his own failures. So there at the altar he may have cried out for divine help and for forgiveness and for God to send revival into his heart that he might live a life more righteously before God. He definitely at this point needed revival, didn't he? Now remember, this isn't just a few days after the struggle all night with the angel of the Lord. This is many, many years later. And he needs another revival in his heart. And uh, so he determines, this is what we'll see next week, Lord willing, he determined that he needed to go where he should have gone from the very beginning. And where was that? Back to Bethel. So next week we're going to look at back to Bethel.